Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. ...of this series called I Disciple. And the reason we call this I Disciple is because of all the names given to those who follow Jesus, the best of all is this word disciple. The word Christian doesn't convey um, what you do. In fact, there are many people in our culture who say they're Christian who don't look anything like a Christian. It's just a box to check. It's kind of like, that's my heritage. But when you're a disciple, it shows movement because a disciple is a learner, is a student, someone who's following someone. And we really boil it down to this. A disciple is someone who is following Jesus and helping others to follow Jesus. It's both uh, a noun and a verb. I disciple. That's who I am. That's my identity. I'm a disciple. But I disciple is also what I do. I disciple other people. I help other people to follow the Lord. And so uh, we looked at that last week and this whole process of, of claiming Jesus as Lord because Jesus came to Peter when he was a fisherman, did this miracle where Peter threw his nets out into deep water after not having caught fish all night, but he obeyed Jesus' words, threw the nets over the side of the boat, and when they pulled the nets in, they were so full of fish that both of the boats began to sink. They were so packed with fish. And Peter was, was in awe of Jesus, and he says, get away from me, for I'm a sinful man, Lord. But yet Jesus said, I know you're unqualified, I know you're unworthy, I know you're undeserving, but follow me, and here's what I'll do. I'll make you a fisher of men. And those guys, Peter and his companions, left their boats behind, followed Jesus, and went on an incredible adventure. Jesus wants to turn us into disciples. It's not just simply saying, I believe, because a lot of people say uh, they believe. I I grew up my whole life believing in Jesus. But there's a a change in life that has to occur. It's called a conversion. It's, It's called being born again. Jesus is not like Oprah. He's not like Dr. Phil trying to improve your life. Jesus wants to implode your life. He wants to blow it up on the inside, to turn everything upside down, to change everything radically that's been out of line within your life, to get you in line with him, to follow him. And the Bible says that if we turn our lives in that direction, in the direction of Christ, that's what repentance is, and we confess Jesus as Lord... That means we will go wherever he wants us to go and we'll do whatever he wants us to do and we'll pay whatever price um, he calls us to pay because he did it for us. He laid his life down for us. And so we follow Jesus as the Lord. Lord means ruler. It means master. It means the authority figure in my life. So how does Jesus, as we follow him as Lord, convey his authority to us? Well, it's primarily through this book called the Bible. Jesus, in his ministry, um, had the Old Testament as his Bible. And when Jesus would quote the Old Testament or reference characters and events of the Old Testament, he considered them real. Not not fables, not not just, not made-up stories, but actual events. He based his ministry on the Scriptures. He quoted verses from the Scriptures. He corrected misunderstandings of the Scriptures. Jesus loved the Scriptures, And you need to know that because sometimes you'll hear someone say this, I love Jesus, I just don't get into that Bible stuff. I just don't like the Bible. don't understand the Bible, it's contradictory, it's hard to understand, I just love Jesus. But but here's the truth, you cannot follow Jesus without following what he says. Because here's what Jesus said in the book of John, John chapter 14. We have that verse, there it is. Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. If you love him, You'll do what? You'll follow his teaching. You'll listen to his words. And so we are called to listen to his words. A disciple is someone who longs to know and to live God's word. 
Several years ago, the Willow Creek Association did a survey among 1,500 churches. And they looked at individuals and asked the questions um, from the place before you came to know Jesus, when you were in the seeking mode, to the period when you were like a new Christian starting to grow, to the place where you were a, a pretty solid Christian and continue to grow, to the point where some people became radical, sold out Jesus followers. In each of those phases of development, what moved you from this stage to this stage and this stage to this stage and so on? And what were the events? What were the habits? What were the teachings? What were the activities? You know, things like church attendance or daily devotions or fasting or going to a small group. What were the things that helped you to move along that path? Well, they found, um, to their surprise, one common denominator from every single stage of spiritual development. There was one thing that catapulted them forward from here to here to here to here. And that key thing that was, that was all through their spiritual growth was time reading and reflecting on Scripture. It helped at every phase of spiritual. It was, it was helpful for the new person who's trying to find Jesus. And it was helpful for the person who's just radically devoted to Jesus. All had this hunger for God's word. And that hunger for God's word as they took God's word into their life. And it, and it began to change them, move them from stage to stage. Now, a lot of us understand that. And so you bring your Bible when you come to church. But when, when you go through your week, you sit down with a cup of coffee or tea in the morning maybe or evening. And you open up your Bible and you read something. You know, it's just become part of your daily ritual. Some others here um, bring your Bible to church, but when you get home, you put it on a shelf because you're not a Bible scholar. You never went to college. It's for the experts, and so you come to church so you can hear the teachers and the preachers, but you really get overwhelmed by it. Some of you have been intimidated by the Scriptures. Man, there's so many books of the Bible. Where do you start? And I don't know all these characters, and I don't even know what version of the Bible to get. You just get so intimidated by it. Some of you get turned off to it because someone told you that the Bible's full of contradictions, or the Bible doesn't make sense, or how can you trust ancient people like this? And so you're kind of turned off. And some of you actually have tried to get into the Bible and you just got discouraged. You know, you got you, Genesis, and that was pretty exciting. And then you got to Leviticus. And you go, oh, I just can't get through all these laws and diseases and, and all these things, cleansing stuff. So I'm just, I don't get it. Um, so you get turned off. And you know, I've been at all those phases of my spiritual growth at different times. But I'll have to tell you very honestly and sincerely that nothing has grown me more spiritually than time in this book. And there was times when it was overwhelming and times I didn't understand things. But, you know, when I first started reading the Bible, I found that if I would pick sections of Scripture like Proverbs or the Psalms or the Gospels or the book of James, that, you know what? It made sense. I didn't have to be a Bible scholar to understand the simple truths being taught there. And, and there are some harder things. When you get into the prophets and you get into Leviticus or Revelation, you say, I, I don't get those yet. You know, I found out over time that it's like layer upon layer. You start learning and you grow upon that and you build on that foundation. You learn more. Even today as I read passages I've read maybe hundreds of times before, I still learn new things because you're building on it. You know, in 1981 when I was in college, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I had not yet decided to be a pastor. I just had offered myself to God and said, God, use me in some way. Well, when I bought this new Bible in 1981, my, my prior Bible was, was ruined in a car accident. So I went out and bought a new Bible, same version as I had before, NIV, and I, um, I decided to make a dedication, and I wrote it um, at the, at the, on the inside of the cover of this Bible. And I want to read to you a portion of what I wrote within this book. It was my commitment to what I wanted to get out of this Bible. 
I wrote, I found life in him, meaning Jesus, such a wonderful life that I'll always be thankful. It is my goal and honor and pleasure to glorify him in my life. I pray that our Holy Father will cause the word of truth in this book to come alive in me, to grow to maturity in me, and in the process to transform the lives of others in order that they too may share in the life that is truly life. December 1981. And you know what? God's, God's honored that. And it has entered into my life. It has changed my life. And God has used me to convey his word to children and to adults as a teacher and as a pastor to help their lives be transformed by the the truths of this book as it leads us to the life that is truly life. This book is life. It's powerful. There's nothing that will change your life as much as spending time reading and reflecting on Scripture. What I want to focus on today is raise your view of the value of the Bible because the greater the value of the Scriptures, the more vital you'll see it as a significant part of your life. The value makes the disciplines of getting into it more significant. Now, some of you may may wonder, now, are you going to use the Bible to support the Bible? And I am. I'm going to use Scripture to support Scripture, which seems like circular reasoning. And the reason I, I can look to the Scripture is this. Sometimes you may look at a book that, that is 2,000 plus years old. You know, the New Testament writings are almost 2,000 years old. And then you go to Old Testament, they're even older than that. How can we trust these ancient writers? I mean, that's such a long time ago. Long, long time ago. But how long ago isn't as significant as how close the writings are to the actual events that occurred. For example, if you're looking into history, and William Lane Craig, who's a professor of theology at Talbot Theological School, points this out very clearly in a video that some of you may have even seen this week. It was sent to me, and I said, man, he makes such a great point. That when you're looking at history, I want you to look at this chart. There are three pieces to this. One is the events. One is when the evidence of the events was recorded, and usually it's written. And then you get to today. Now, today is whatever period you live in. So if we look at events that occurred, say, 2,000 years ago, when was the this account recorded? Now, a lot of major historical figures, like Alexander the Great, when he lived, there were, there were no documented recordings of his life and his dealings and his conquerings and all that until 400 years after he lived. 400 years. And yet historians look at those writings and say, um, they're trustworthy, they're trustworthy. You can believe the words about Alexander the Great, even though nobody wrote them down until 400 years later, which means someone told someone, which told someone, which told someone, which told someone, generations, to get to the person who says, I've got to write that down. Wrote it down, and those are the ones we read. Think of it today. If someone was in an accident here, and, uh, and then you describe it to someone, and then someone describes it to someone, and hundreds of years later, someone describes it, how trustworthy is that going to be? That's how most of history, because... The oral tradition was so significant, so reliable, that people said, you can believe something even if it was 400 years after it occurred. So when we look at Alexander the, the, the Great, the Greek conqueror, we say we trust the recordings of his life, even though that gap is 400 years. So what's important is the gap between the events and the evidence. Now, when you look at Jesus, what's recorded about Jesus in the Gospels happened within the first century, I mean, first generation of his life. That it was written down during the period of time when the witnesses lived. The disciples who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, actually were alive. It's not 400 years. It's within the first 30, 40 years of when it happened. And if you think you can trust a document that's 400 years old, we can trust a document that was written so close. Because people could verify whether it was true or not. They could discredit it if it wasn't. 
What's, what's not important is how long between then and now, because a thousand years from now is not going to change. What matters is that within a short period of time, someone sealed it in writing and verified this was what happened. And so we trust God's word. We trust what Jesus says about the scriptures. And so as we dive into this, I want you to just have, open yourself to have confidence that what God says about his word is true. And if you approach it from there, I can tell you this. It's going to have an amazing impact on your life. And it'll have an amazing impact even today as you realize how valuable the scriptures are. So let's pray as we prepare our hearts for this. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. Lord, speak to us and help us, Lord, not only to know it, but to live your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, seven, seven just brief points I want to make here of the value of the scriptures. Number one, it feeds my soul. It feeds my soul. Jesus said when he was in the um, desert being tempted by the, the devil, he says in Matthew 4, verse 4, every time that, that Satan came and tempted him, Jesus responded with scripture. And one of those responses was this. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus draws a scripture from the Old Testament from the time when the Israelites wandered in the, in the wilderness and God provided this bread-like substance called manna every day. And every day they would scoop up this manna and eat it. And Jesus says, they needed that to live, but you need something even more important to live. And it's called the word of God. Jesus isn't the only one that likens scriptures to food. David says it's like honey to my taste. Paul says it's like spiritual meat. And Peter says it's like milk, you know, for a newborn to drink. It's, it's a significant part of our spiritual development. If you talk to any nutritionist or doctor, um, they'll typically say there are two things that really, that really come together for your health, diet and exercise. You, what, you, what you eat and then what you do with your body. You need to eat, you need to exercise. And if you had to prioritize them, um, I would say you put eating first. Because you know what? If, if you eat and don't exercise, well, you know what happens. You just get fat. Maybe you get sick, but you get fat. Not, not a good place to be, but the opposite would be you're going to exercise and not eat. Okay, you know what happens if you do that? You die. Okay, so you have to have food. You need food because it's the fuel for life. And so when we come together and we open up the scriptures, we're, we're presenting food, spiritual food, to eat. And you need to, to eat it. Uh, one of the words in the Bible for the, that's translated meditate is the same word, a very similar word that's used of a cow chewing its cud. When you think about that, uh, if, you, if you've lived on a farm or know about cows, they chew, the, they chew their food, they swallow it. Then they bring it up later as a snack. Chew it some more. Swallow it. Sounds gross, right? I know, don't try it. Don't try it. Let the cows deal with that. They bring it up again. Chew on it. Swallow it. You know, they, they do this several times. That's, that, that's the picture of meditation. You take God's word... You, you, you take it in, bring it back up later, think about it some more, tuck it away, bring it back up, chew on it some more. You know what happens when you do that? All of a sudden you go, wow, that's what that means. You know, you read a scripture, and sometimes we just read and buzz through scripture, but when you stop and meditate and chew on it, it just starts to penetrate into your life. It gets absorbed into your life. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And he watches over me. That means I'm just like a little old sheep wandering around and he comes after, man, that's what God is to me. Wow. That's a, it begins to become part of, of our lives. Now, when I come to church, to be honest, I'll confess to you, this has been the way for probably 30 years. I don't come to church to be fed. 
Now, it's not, it's not wrong to come to be fed. I'm just saying, I don't come to be fed because for, for many, many years, I've developed a discipline of studying at home during the week. And I'm so full by the time I come to church, I don't really need to eat a whole lot. It's not that I don't like hearing another preacher or hearing another teacher. I do gain from that. But it's not like, man, I gotta have that. They gotta feed me or I'm gonna die this week. No, I'm, I've eaten pretty good this week. And if I get another little bite to chew on, that's okay. But I'm okay because I've been eating all week long. And so sometimes it feels like this at church on Sunday, like, like from the pastor's point of view. Remember when, you're, when, when you have little kids and you reach over across the table and you cut up their meat for them? Sometimes you even stab with the fork and put it in their mouth. Sometimes it feels like that with, with, with like a new believer, a baby Christian. You're cutting up the scriptures, getting them in little digestible bites and presenting it so you can eat it. And that's okay for a period of time. But like Sam was saying, that's not where we need to stay. We got to get beyond that to where we can cut our own meat and lift our own fork. Do it during the week. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to do that. You don't have to be a, a, a Bible-trained teacher to do that. You can do it in your own home. That's the beautiful thing about Scripture. Get a Bible you can understand, take it home, start to read it, start to digest it, take it. You know, I, I've got a, an assistant, and she has two teenage boys who cook meals at home now. They're 16, 16 years old, cooking dinner for the family. I think, well, that's awesome that they have that skill already. It'd be awesome if, if every person in this church says, you know what, I not only can, can open up the Scriptures and and take little bites for myself, I'm now able to prepare a meal for my family. I can teach my kids. I can, I can teach a class. I can teach here at church because I've learned how to handle God's word. That's really the goal where we want to take people is, is to help you get to a place where you feel confidence in, in opening up the scriptures and feeding, not only feeding yourself but feeding other people because it nourishes our soul. Now, there is an exercise part of that, so I don't want to skip over that. The Bible says in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So that's the exercise. Do what it says. Live it out. But it all begins with getting it into our lives, digesting it. The word feeds my soul. Secondly, it gives me life. John's six sixty three. Jesus has a large group gathered. They just fed them fishes and loaves. And then Jesus said, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. There's a connection here between two words, spirit and life. And, uh, and the source is God's word. And you'll find in your life that the Holy Spirit uses God's word in your life to bring life to you, to energize you. You know, when the Bible um, opens up to us, it's this world about ourselves. It, it tells us our own condition, the own issues, better than any other book that's around. It shows us the human heart and our, our um, faultiness, our sinfulness, how we've fallen short of God's expectations. But it does even more than that. It shows us the solution for a problem. It points us to the source of life, which is Jesus. It doesn't, it doesn't simply say, correct your bad behavior. What it really says is, you can't correct your bad behavior on your own. You need Jesus. And Jesus did something you could never do. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for sin. And now he offers life to all who will put their trust in him. The point of scriptures is not simply to tell us about ourselves and gives us, give us some tips how to live our lives. The scriptures are intended to point us to Jesus, to get our eyes fixed on Jesus. I love how Tim Keller, who's a pastor of, of a large church in New York City, um, reminds us that every story points us to Jesus, that Jesus is the true and better Abel, 
who offered a better sacrifice to God. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who left a place of comfort to go on a journey to form a new family for God. Jesus is the the, the true and better Moses who intercedes for his people and, and presents to them a way of life. Jesus is the true and better David who defeats the foe who reigns as king. And you go through the stories of Scripture and you, you look at the promises of Scripture and they all point to Jesus, the symbols, the prophecies, the promises, that Jesus truly is the seed of Abraham. Jesus truly is the king of all kings. He's the real prophet who speaks the truth of God. He's the priest who offers a sacrifice. And more than that, he's the lamb of God who becomes the sacrifice. That everything points our eyes to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and what else? The life. And so when we come to know Jesus, we come to know life. And so when this large crowd was gathered there on that day when Jesus was feeding them fishes and loaves, the people said, I don't get all this. And a lot of people left and they they decided not to follow Jesus anymore. And Jesus turns around to his disciples and says, what about you? What are you guys going to do? And Peter says this. Peter says to Jesus, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Life found in the words of Christ because they point us to Jesus. I just want to caution you. The the Bible isn't like a a code book. It's not a book of rules that you simply follow. It's not just a book of history that we learn to master what happened in the past. The whole point of Scripture is to turn our eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the source of life. And in him, we have life. Here's something else the Scripture does. It validates my discipleship. In John chapter 8, Verse 31, Jesus told a group of Jews that had gathered there, and they, they said, we believe you, Jesus. And Jesus said this, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you take my word and live by it, it becomes part of your life. I can tell you're really my disciples because it'll validate whether I'm truly Lord or not. Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're here last week, you, you, you heard me say the scripture. If you weren't, I just need to let you know. There's a, there's a frightening part at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this, this section of Scripture where Jesus said, there's coming a day when many will come and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we did for you. And Jesus will say, I don't even know you because you did not do the will of my Father in heaven. Here, here's the truth. Jesus said, it's possible for you to live a life that looks pretty religious on the outside and yet never really do the will of God. So you may be wondering, well, how in the world can someone do the will of God? Listen, that's the whole point of this book. It's it's in here. God's will is expressed to us in here. And so if you're truly a disciple, you say, I want to know what his will is. I want to hunger. I better get into this book to find out what it is because that's what the test will be on. Did I do his will? So I want to know what it is. He said, if you truly do that, you'll be his disciple. Now, we just started a new program called... um, Celebrate Recovery. It's been going for a couple months now, and some, some of you have been going to that. It's on Friday nights. And the whole focus of that is, is bringing people to a point where they find freedom in Christ. Because a lot of us have um, addictive behaviors. could be alcohol, drugs, pornography. Um, we could have personal issues, anger, um, depression, you know, all kinds of things we're dealing with internally. Um, we can have um, damages from the past, you might, maybe abuse, maybe hurt. Um, There's things that we won't let go of. There's mistakes we've made that we just can't forgive ourselves over. There's all kinds of stuff. And and what it does is it it puts us into bondage. We get trapped. And we feel like we can't get out. 
And there's an enemy of your life. His name is Satan. And Satan likes to capitalize on, on, on those times to whisper in your ear, you'll never recover from this. It's too late to change. You will never be loved. You really blew it. You'll never get a second chance. And he whispers all these lies to us over and over again. You're damaged goods. God can't use you. You're just a failure. And, and we start to believe those. It forms a prison we can't get out of. And so how God frees us is through the scriptures, through the truth. In fact, as he says, that the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. So um, we find freedom within the Lord. It sets me free. John chapter 8, verse 32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, when Jesus was speaking this to the Pharisees, you know what their issue was? It wasn't drugs, and it wasn't abuse. It was legalism. Legalism meaning, um, if I do all these rules, then God owes me favor. If I'm good enough, then God owes it. It's on my terms, so I'm going to get the pat on the back saying, good job, you earned it. And the problem is, you can never be good enough to earn God's favor. We can never merit enough worth for God to owe us anything. And so many of us, even in churches, have this mindset of, if I would just give more, serve more, read my Bible more, attend church more, and we're driven by this guilt all the time, if I could just achieve more, perform more, God would be happy. God says, you'll never do enough to make me happy. I love you for who you are. I don't want you to stay where you are, but I love you where you are. I'm going to do what you could never do. So when Jesus went to the cross and he died for us and he said, it is finished, what was finished was a striving of man to try to earn God's favor. Jesus obeyed God perfectly and Jesus suffered our penalty for death in our place. And he says, trust me, trust me. And so what God whispers in our ears is, you are forgiven, you are loved, You have a hope and a future. I'm making all things new. And so the truth truly does set us free. The truth sets us free. Here's another thing I really love about the scriptures. It makes me successful. It makes me successful. There is a great psalm, and and we aren't going to read the whole psalm, but I'll read the first three verses, Psalm 1. David writes, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or or stand in the way the sinners take, or sit in the company of the mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person, he says, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Get this. Whatever they do prospers. He says, don't be the kind of person that listens to all the advisors around you, all the people around you telling you what to do and what's right and wrong. He says, most of them are going to be wrong. And most of them are going to take you down a wrong path. But instead, do this. Meditate. Chew over and over again on God's word. Do it in the morning. Do it through the day. Make it a regular part of your life. Because if you do that, here's what will happen. You'll be like a tree that's planted by streams of water. Now picture that. This tree that's planted, there's a, this river that has a, an endless flow going by. And you've got your roots down, drawn from that endless flow of water. He says, you'll never stop growing. You'll never stop flourishing. Your leaves will be bright and colorful and the fruit will be uh, amazing because you're constantly being fed by the stream. And that stream is the truth of God that flows in our lives. And as we soak our roots into the word of God, it blesses us. It causes us 
to have a successful marriage, to be successful parents, to have a successful business, to have success in your health. Get this. He says, whatever, whatever he does, prospers. It doesn't narrow to you. Well, spiritual life, you'll really grow in wisdom and knowledge and that part will prosper. But he says, whatever, because the truth of Scripture can affect every single area of your life. And I find that to be true in my life, financially, physically, relationally, spiritually, emotionally. Every single area has been improved. And I've seen success in because I've allowed the Scriptures to shape everything that I do. It will make you successful. Let me ask you this. How would your life be different if you made a commitment to to, to regularly, even daily, saturate yourself with God's word? Because I know some of you are probably dealing with areas in your life that says, my marriage isn't going real well right now. My my relationship with my kids, not so hot. And finances, they're in the tank. And in all these areas where you don't see success, Could it be that you need to step back and say, God, I just need to do this thing, to saturate myself in your word and allow that to kind of spill over and impact every single area of my life? God wants to do that, and he will do that as you lean on his word. A sixth thing the scriptures do, it keeps me on the right path. Keeps me on the right path. Now, today we get kind of lazy with staying on the right path because we have this little device called a GPS and you, you used to have them just uh, mounted on your dashboard, but now you can just pull out your phone. And I pull out my little phone here often, and I'll just put in an address. And you guys do that? You just put in the address, and, and then the little voice there. By the way, did you know you can change the voice? For, yeah, you can change it like different, different cultures. So I says, I want an Australian to tell me, you know, uh, the directions. Because all these, all these reality shows have these um, English and Australian hosts. And I says, I, w- I don't want to have Siri, just regular Siri. I want Siri with an accent. So I pulled up the little, the little and then I went back because they do say some things a little bit different. So I said, I, I guess I just want American. So I went back to it. But I use that GPS, and it helps me get where I'm going. But the other day, I was using it, and I came, was coming out of a little strip mall, and I knew that I needed to turn left right here to go down the road. But it said, turn right and go down a ways and make a U-turn. I said, why would I want to do that when I can turn right here? This lady's wrong. So I says, I'm going to break the rule and ignore her. I don't know if an alarm will go off or something, but I'm just going to go straight through and I turn, and, and it worked. It was fine. Do you know GPSs sometimes are wrong? That there have been people who've ended up in a body of water because they followed the GPS so literally. I know it says to turn here. I know it doesn't look like, it looks like water, but there must be a bridge under there or something. Boof, they're down in the water. People have done that. They've gone into one-way streets because GPS told me to do this, right into traffic. There was a guy up in New York, Bedford Falls, New York, that turned on a railroad track because GPS told him to turn. So he goes, starts heading down this railroad track saying, I guess it must be the shortcut. And then he saw a train coming. And so he gets out of his car and he starts you know, waving for the train to stop. Let me just warn you, if a train's coming... I don't care how hard you wave, he ain't stopping for you. And that train hit that car at 100 miles an hour, drove it 250 feet down the track. GPSs sometimes make mistakes. Now let me ask you this. If I'm trying to get from point A to B in my life, like in my, in my, just in my life, how am I going to do that? I need, a, I need something more reliable than a GPS. Well, God's given us a book. 
a, a book that he says, you, you, it's your guide. It's like, a, it's like a light unto your path. It's the word of God. And it'll help you to navigate all these challenges and hills and turns in life. And our real goal isn't just to get from point A to point B. It's to get from point E to point H, from earth to heaven. That's ultimately where I want to get to. And how do I get there? In fact, somebody, somebody has described the Bible like this. It's a good acrostic to remember. B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Now that, that's my instruction guide. That's my manual. That's what I want to listen to because it'll help guide me through those difficulties and challenges. It keeps me on the right path. Now here's a great scripture that tells us what the scriptures are capable of doing. It's um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. I mean, it originated with God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scriptures are given to fully equip you. How does it do it? Well, one, it, it teaches, tells us what the path is we need to be on. It rebukes us, which means it speaks pretty directly to us when we've gotten off the path. It corrects us, helps us to get back on the path, trains us in righteousness, keeps us on the path for the long term. The scriptures are useful. He says it's, it's fully capable of keeping you on the right path in your life. Well, the last benefit of scripture, value of scripture, that I want to point out is that it equips us for battle. Ephesians chapter 6 describes all these different pieces of spiritual armor. And, and, and at the end of that listing of the pieces of armor, Paul says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. What's the sword of the Spirit? Wish you'd, wish you'd tell us what that is. Well, he does. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. The sword is, take the S off, the Word. The sword is the Word. It's, it's our, our weapon. Against who? Well, think of Jesus. When Jesus was fighting against the devil with temptation, you know what Jesus did? Every time Satan threw a temptation to Jesus, you know what he did? He pulled his sword out. It is written. Each, each time Jesus would get tempted, he'd, he'd pull out the sword. It is written. And, and, and wave it in front of, of Satan. Now, he didn't do that, I'm sure. But he just said, here's what God says. I'm not going to believe you because here's what God says. And so much of our lives, we have to deal with the lies that come at us, the temptations, the, the false truths. And we say, you know what? I know what you say, but God says this. So I'm going to trust God's word on this one because it's reliable. It's endured the test of time. In 1995, I clipped out a little um, article. It was one of those Dear Abby letters. And this guy wrote to, to Abby, and he said this. He's a veteran of World War II. He said, I was a demolition specialist in the 99th Division that held the northern shoulder in the Battle of the Bulge. Around January 20th, 1945, we were on the offensive, and shells began to fall nearby. I took refuge in a bombed-out building where I found a New Testament open to Psalm 20. There were two bloody thumbprints on the pages. Evidently, the soldier had been reading the Bible when the medics picked him up. It got me really curious. This man was writing to Dear Abney. He says, uh, inside the Bible cover is a name of a church, but it doesn't exist anymore. So I want to know where that church was and, and what, maybe it's been renamed something. I want to find that man who owned the Bible if he's still alive to return his Bible to him. Now, I never heard the end of that story. But what, what got my attention was this. Why are there bloody, bloody thumbprints on Psalm 20? What is it about Psalm 20 
that this soldier, in the midst of, being, of, of bombs flying overhead, who's in a life-and-death situation, would cause him to turn to the Bible to find solace in Psalm 20. What is it that's in Psalm 20? I couldn't wait to find out what was in Psalm 20. So I opened it, and I began to read. Now, I'm not going to read all of Psalm 20 to you, but I do want to say, share this verse that I think must have meant the world to him. Verse 7 of Psalm 20 says this. Remember the bloody thumbprints clinging to the scriptures. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in tanks. Some trust in artillery. But I'm trusting in my God. That he's going to get me through. That he'll be true and he'll be faithful. You know, there are times in your life when you will find scriptures meaning so much to you. You'll, you'll become so acquainted with the scriptures that there'll be uh, parts of the Psalms or there'll be verses from the prophets or there'll be sayings of Jesus that you'll say, you know what, there was a season in my life when I, when I grabbed onto that verse and it meant the world to me. There was an issue I was going through in my life and I grabbed onto that scripture and I just held it so dear to me. There's a promise in the scriptures that Jesus said and I held onto that promise and said, God, I trust you're gonna be faithful to what you said about this that's carried you through those situations. See, here's the beautiful thing about Scripture. The more you get into it, the more it gets into you. And so I'm gonna share with you three ways to let the Scriptures get into you, to make it a, a part of your life. Very simply, one, read it. Start reading it. You may feel like, well, I, I don't know where to start. Start in something that's very easy to understand, like, like Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Beautiful place to start. Go into the book of Acts, and then, then read some other letters of the New Testament, then jump back to the book of Proverbs or Psalms. Start someplace, but the, begin to make a regular habit of, of reading God's word. Secondly, live it. Live it. Do what it says. As, as you hear God's voice speaking to you, do what it says. In other words, apply it to life. Now, when you think of uh, like paint, when you apply paint to a wall, you want it to stick. When you apply scripture, you want the scripture to stick. You want it to be something you'll never forget. And you, and you do that by living it out. And then don't keep it to yourself. Share it. Share it with your kids. Share what you're learning with someone else. Uh, be, become a teacher. Become someone that gathers your kids and says, kids, you know what? Mom or dad's been reading the Bible this week, and here's what God said, and here's what I want to share with you. You begin to share with others. Become a teacher in our children's area. You don't have to be a Bible expert to do that. You just have to be a growing Christian with some basic understandings, and you can be in a position of helping others. But the more you get into the Word, the more the Word will get into you. And really, that's our goal as a church, to help you tune into the voice of God. Because God speaks through creation, and God speaks through the Holy Spirit, but He most clearly and profoundly speaks to us through His Word. Maybe today he's been speaking to you. The Sam said, our desire is that you encounter the living God and that you hear his voice because God is speaking. He's even speaking today. Maybe he spoke to you through the sermon. Maybe he spoke to you through something Pastor Sam shared or, or maybe through the time of worship. Maybe God's been speaking to you for the last several weeks. Here's what I want you to do. Would you do this? Would you acknowledge that the God of all creation, the God of heaven, has been speaking to you? After all, he wants you to hear his voice and to follow him. So the problem isn't that God's not speaking. He's speaking. The problem is, are we hearing? If you today just acknowledge, God, I hear you. Because if you hear God, here's what's probably going to happen. Some of you will say, I hear God, but what he wants me to do is scary. Or what he, what he wants me to do is, is going to take a lot, of, a lot of courage. 
or what he wants me to do hurts. Or maybe what he wants me to do, I just can't believe it's so true. It's hard to believe that God would, would do that for me. What is it that God's saying to you today? We want to affirm that today. We want to affirm the fact that the living God is speaking today, that we're hearing his voice. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have some prayer partners up here in the front. We're going to invite you to come to acknowledge the fact that God is speaking to you, that God loves you enough that he cares for you to speak personally to you through the Holy Spirit and the Word. And if there's something we can pray for over you, we'll do that. If there's something we can affirm that God's doing, if there's a decision you need to make to move forward in your spiritual life, we'll partner with you in that. So go ahead and stand right now. Pastor Matt's going to lead us in worship. And then we're just going to be available for anyone who needs someone to pray with up front here. So come as we sing this song of response. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.